This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 11th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers talking to you again this week from Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to be looking at a few things that have happened here in the area of federal taxes. First thing I'm going to talk about here is a little bit of discussion of the fact that it appears we've started up discussions again on a reconciliation bill in Congress. Again, we have kind of a short time period to get something done quickly because Congress will be heading for their August recess. So we'll see if anything gets done before they leave. If not, we may be waiting quite a while because they should be very much into electioneering mode once they get back from the August recess. Secondly, we'll talk about a IRS revenue procedure that extends by three years the time period during which you can make an automatic late portability election if you have a taxpayer that qualifies in a state that qualifies for that. IRS has taken that from two years that we had based on the 2017 ruling all the way up now to five. So we'll be in that range. We'll talk about an IRS email advice that discussed whether a federal tax lien could attach to a series of payments being made to a seller of a business's former spouse to pay off the seller's alimony payments uh, being made by the buyer of his business. And when the seller got into later federal tax trouble, the question arose about whether the IRS could put a lien on that payment, which of course would serve to redirect those payments from the seller or from the buyer, uh, instead of going to the seller's former spouse to satisfy his alimony liability, would end up going to the IRS. So interesting discussion there. And finally, we'll look at a physician's unsuccessful attempt to get the tax court to waive late payment and late filing penalties uh, for what, as I recall, is three years of returns that she never got around to filing. We'll talk about reasonable cause and why what she tried to argue the court found fell far short of reasonable cause. But let's start looking at this reconciliation bill for the moment. It was reported this week that negotiations are underway again in the Senate over the reconciliation bill. Primarily, these discussions are going on right now with uh, Senator Joe Manchin, since he's one of the major uh one of those in the Democratic Party uh, who is going to be, who's essentially looking at one of the more restrictive, shall we say, in terms of changes or tax law changes, spending programs of the Democrats, he and probably Senator Sinema. They have a little bit different concepts on what they don't like, but it appears they're negotiating there to try to get something through on the reconciliation bill. If you remember the way reconciliation bills work is they are a special category of bills that don't require going through the standard cloture motion in the United States Senate in order to bring something to a vote on the floor. So we don't have the 60 vote rule in place at this point. Rather, the uh, members of the Senate can pass it by simply going with, or I should say, it can come to a vote which is the key issue here, it can come to a vote without having to get 60 senators to agree that we can vote on something. So that's why it's usually used by a party that's in total control of the House, Senate, and the presidency 
as a way to get their major programs through. As I've noted before, it was used for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It was attempted to be used for repeal and replace of the Obamacare program. But as we all know, that particular attempt at reconciliation bill crashed and burned uh, rather badly. It was also used as a way in the end to do some final cleanup on Obamacare. Uh, when that happened back in 2010, you may remember that the Democrats had a 60-vote majority in the Senate, but there was a special election in Massachusetts where the Democratic candidate lost, and that suddenly made it a 59-41 or 59-41 group in the Senate, meaning that they no longer had the 60 votes. So we've done it that way. We've also did it that goes all the way back to AGTRA for times when reconciliation process has been used to get around the 60 vote limit for programs that the party in control didn't have 60 votes in the Senate to pass. And I expect we're going to see that continue into the future. More and more often, we're going to wait till one party gets control of all three, you know, the presidency, the House, the Senate, and then we use reconciliation to get their program in. At this point, though, supposedly Senator Manchin has agreed to an expansion of the net investment income tax to apply mainly, we're looking at here, to S-corporation uh, shareholders who have over $400,000 of income and have them pay the 3.8% net investment income tax. The 400000 goes back to Biden's, you know, President's uh campaign promised that he wouldn't raise taxes on anybody with income under 400000 So that's where that magic number comes in. But it would be in play to raise money. Now, it's interesting enough, scored, we've been told, to raise a bit less money than it was scored to raise when, it, when they were talking about this last year. And, you know, when the BBB, the Build Back Better Act, was in play. So we're not sure what the details are on this. And the other thing to remember is there's still quite a bit of uncertainty about whether anything finally gets passed. As I said, we just have the August recess coming up. We have the August recess coming up. So realistically, it seems far more likely that if we're going to get something through, it probably would have to get through so that we then have a tax bill to play with. We know what it looks like for this year uh, in August. If it doesn't get in August, I have some trouble seeing them coming back in September with the elections coming up in November. I think the Congress, Congress, all those in Congress, both the House and the Senate, or well, the House and one third of the Senate, will be very interested in election issues. So it may be difficult to get a vote scheduled at that point. And as you get close to the election date, once the election is done, then it may be more interesting because you may have people. Now, good news, I guess, is it's usually easier to pass certain things in a lame duck session because you have certain members of Congress who now know they're not coming back and who realistically probably don't have any political future left. So they pretty much can vote without worrying about keeping the, uh, you know, keep, keeping happy the uh, voters in their party, you know, so they could they won't get primaried next time. Uh, so can be easier to pass some things in that scenario. But we'll have to keep our eye on that. It's really something quite open. 
Also, if we do pass something, I warn people always, we need to see the actual text of the bill. Um, the problem right now is we have a whole lot of speculation about, well, what's actually going to be in this net investment income tax rule and how is it different from what the House had before since it scores differently. And that's all well and good. And I, I'm sure you're going to find people prognosticating left and right about how this is going to work. All I will tell people is, yes, I think it's very likely we're seeing an expansion of the net investment income tax if this bill gets through. But as far as the details go, I'll know those once I see the text of the law. And I am not going to speculate until I see the text of the law on exactly how it's going to impact a particular client. So it could be interesting. It's also not terribly surprising in one sense that they're going after S corporations. Uh, remember the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in the House bill that was passed? S corporations would have been put on a par with partnerships for purposes of taxing self-employment tax. So it would have had, if you, you know, if you have flow through income, there would have been special rules that would have forced you to pay self-employment tax on a portion of that, unless you took a salary that was large enough based on a percentage they would come up with of total income. So it would have reduced SE tax somewhat for at least some partnerships, but would have re increased SE tax, but actually very dramatically, SE and FICA, for some S corporations. So because it passed that, and again, the Senate was one that took that out, it's, I, I think it's a matter of time before S corporations and the self-employment tax dodge simply become a victim of Congress's search for some revenue because you now have virtually everybody in Congress at some point, everybody who's been in Congress for very many years, at some point has voted in favor of taxing that flow through income as self-employment income, or in this case, net investment income, tax income. So I have a feeling it's just a matter of time and we can discuss you know, what that does. My guess is it probably makes S corporations far less attractive simply because, as I've always said when teaching on that topic, to me, there's not a lot of advantages to an S corp compared to a partnership. Partnerships are far more flexible, don't blow up as easy. There's There are a lot of advantages to a partnership. The whole SE tax savings has been the real world's reason why these people are electing S status. So we'll have to see what happens if we get that. Next up, we're going to talk about Revenue Procedure 2022-32. This one came out on July the 8th. And this deals with the whole issue of portability. Now, you, you know, hopefully you're aware of what portability is. If you're not, we'll have a quick summary here. Generally, as we know, if you die, when you die, and I shouldn't say if, it will happen. So when you die, let's assume you're married. When a person dies, we have an amount of money. You know, the basic exclusion amount is what we tend to refer to it as now. That we could pass on to our heirs tax-free at our death reduced by the amount of that that we may have basically gifted before we died. Now, the other thing about estate taxes and gift taxes, too, is that if we leave our assets or gift our assets to our spouse, that also doesn't pay estate tax. Now, the problem is that, you know, quite often a traditional marriage, let's say, that, you know, has been longstanding, 
if this isn't a second or third marriage in this mix. So, you know, they've been married for 40 years. They have kids. They want everything to go to the kids, grandkids, but only after both of them have passed away. So the surviving spouses, you know, spouses probably think of it this way. When the first one dies, all assets would go to the control of the surviving spouse. And then when that spouse dies, then the assets would go to the next generation. Now, the problem we had was the way the, unif the way that whole basic exclusion amount, unified credit, whatever, you're, whatever time period you're talking about, we look at that number. But that amount that could pass tax-free at death, if we didn't actually pass assets to a non-spouse at the first death to absorb the first person's exclusion amount, we essentially lost half of it. So let's go back to the, you know, Pre, let's go back to pre-Agro when we were heading toward a million-dollar exclusion. Well, you know, you have a married couple. They each have a million-dollar exclusion. But under those rules, if one died and simply left everything to the surviving spouse, then when the second spouse dies, only $1 million worth of the assets would have been exempt from estate tax. We tended to use was a bypass trust, which meant that when the first spouse died, we'd put a million dollars into a trust that went to the next generation or grandkids or whatever later generations at the death of the surviving spouse. But the surviving spouse had income for life. And under certain circumstances, the we could raid the trust in order to provide for their living expenses or anything to keep their lifestyle about like what it had been before. Now, that structure had the advantage of, you know, we didn't care how much that, that account grew to, so we could escape escape, escape estate tax there. But at a huge disadvantage that surviving spouses hated it. It did require additional money to be spent because we had to draft the trust. We had to keep the trust updated. We had to actually annually prepare trust income tax returns. We had to have trust accountings, etc. What portability allowed you to do, it's an alternative, and it allowed you at the first death to go ahead and leave all the assets if you wanted to the surviving spouse. But then you could also elect to give the surviving spouse the exemption the first spouse to die didn't use. That's the concept of portability. Very roughly, it gets messier and there are ways you can blow it. So we won't go into that here, but that's allowed to be done. But the key takeaway was you had to make that election on a Form 706 that was filed within the time frame when a Form 706 was supposed to be filed. So that would be nine months after the date of death. And you could get a six-month extension to make that 15 months if you timely filed for it. But if you didn't make that election, portability was not and is not automatic. It's not that way today. Now, what happened here was the IRS came to the conclusion that, well, there's no estate tax really due. There, there's no estate tax return due. And the law said well, with, with the return that was due, there is none due if you don't have a, a taxable estate in excess of the limits. And right now, we're, no, we're well over $11 million for those limits that you would have to file. So the IRS ruled back in 2017, they put together Revenue Procedure 2017-34. And what that said, because we're getting all these requests for private letter rulings, the IRS had decided they would use the same filing date for those that need to file. But because the law provided for no dates for those to file their estate tax return, this was an election date for the portability 
that had been set by regulation if and only if no estate tax return was due. Because of that, the IRS position has always been under regulation 301.9100-3 that since the IRS set the date in regulation, the IRS has the authority to waive the due date for the election, allowing for a late election. So Revenue Procedure 2017-34 provided for automatic relief. Instead of having to file for a private letter ruling, which is how you normally have to go down 301.9100-3 relief for late elections, you could simply take the steps required in the revenue procedure and you would automatically be deemed as having made an acceptable election. They would waive the date and treat your, treat your election as timely. Now, what happened there was obviously you needed to have somebody who died when portability was in place, so after 2010. Not really a big deal at this point, but that was in there. You had to have an estate where there was no estate tax return actually required, because again, the IRS position is if a return is actually required, they have no authority to allow you to make a late election. Number three, there could not have been an estate tax return filed because the regulations also tell us that if one is not required, but you file one, if you file one with the election, you've made the election. If you file one and don't make the election, you've taken the position that no election shall be made, which an estate is allowed to do, though there seem to be not a whole lot of reasons to want to actually fill out an estate tax return that's not required, merely to say we're not doing portability, unless you just got a big family fight. There are some problems in the way the regs are written that could allow a you know kids of the of the first spouse to die when you have second, third marriages could conceivably throw a monkey wrench in if they just wanted to mess things up, messing up the rules. But so we have that. We, we didn't file a 706. None has been filed by the executor. If no executor was appointed by a party receiving assets from the estate, because that, that, that's who can file if no executor is filed, that, that's a non-executor that's treated as an executor, kind of a deemed executor. Then we could file a 706. It has to be complete, but you can use the special rules that allow you to do a simplified 706 if no 706 is due and you're only doing it to elect portability. So we have that option, as long as you did that within two years of the date of death. Now, what the IRS discovered was that they still continue to get a lot of private lettering requests. And I can tell you, yeah, it's clear because we see those regularly come out. It appears what was happening was two years wasn't quite long enough for this to get caught. So I suspect what happened in many cases was, you know, surviving spouse, you know, doesn't get around to filing it, doesn't do it, was never advised about it. Somewhere four years later, surviving spouse goes to new counsel. Counsel, you know, looks at and says, yeah, we'll clean this up. Look what's there deal with your estate plan, take a look at it, discover that portability was never elected, but that this spouse is going to be, you know, when this spouse dies, the estate will very possibly be subjected to estate tax. So they want to make a late portability election. So they filed for a private letter ruling and paid the fee. And the IRS has decided they don't want to do all of those. So what the IRS has decided to do is make a modification. This is where Revenue Procedure 2022-32 comes into play. 
In this case, the estates that qualify, it's pretty much the same, everything listed as back in 2017-34. We have to have an estate of a decedent who died after 2010. Hey, okay, that's fine. And obviously, to be totally honest, we are enough years past 2010 now that, yeah, you're not going to qualify anyway, even if we ignored that first part, because you're not, you're going to be within five years of the date of death. Secondly, we're going to need, as I said before, the estate cannot be one that was required to file a Form 706 because the size of the estate was large enough to require a filing. And then number two, the estate cannot have filed a 706, neither the executor nor any party, you know, the non-executor, if no executor or personal rep was appointed. None of those filed, so nobody's filed that. And we file a Form 706 prepared properly, again, potentially with the simplifying options, because we're only doing an election for portability, we qualify for that, which we probably do, then if all of that's true, we file that with the IRS within five years of the date of death. So by the fifth anniversary of the death of the decedent, then suddenly we get into that. If we do that, then, you know, the DSUE election's in play. Now, this ruling talks a little bit about, though, what might arise in a case like that and even suggests very clearly that you could use this even if the surviving spouse has died in the interim. Because this also, I suspect, was a case they ran into quite often where the surviving spouse dies, new counsel comes in to handle the surviving spouse's estate, discovers there'd be estate tax due because the portability election was not made and now wants to go back and have the election made. So we're going to allow this, at this point, five years. Now, if a gift tax return had been filed and gift tax actually paid in the interim, which is unlikely but possible, then if you make this late election, you're allowed to go file a claim for refund and get that money back as long as the statute has not closed on filing the claim for refund. Now, they go one other point here and also clarify this. You, can't, you could file the claim before the 706 goes in to, you know, to qualify with this rev proc to make the late election. If you do so, that will be considered a protective claim only. And after you get the 706 filed, and remember, this will not stop the five-year period on getting that 706 filed. So primarily, we're looking at this for, let's say, a gift tax return or a state tax return whose statute was going to close, you know, before five-year anniversary of date of death. So we're going to try to get this thing filed, get this filed to hold the statute open and then allow us to actually do the fixed 706 by that fifth year after year of death, fifth anniversary of date of death before that date. And then we could roll forward. Now, the ruling also says that if you're filing an original 706 or an original 709, and you've not yet got this revised 706 sign from the first decedent, the first deceased spouse uh, filed yet to make this election, you cannot claim the exclusion or claim the extra exclusion on that 709 or 706. You know, that will not function as a claim for refund. You actually have to pay that tax. And this is going to say, let's be honest, if the tax return is due before we're going to be able to get that revised 709 file. 
So what that tells you is if you're in that position, you might need to file the estate tax return, pay the estate tax, and then turn around and if for whatever reason you really thought the statute would die before you got this done, which seems unlikely, but you know if you had that problem, the statute would die on this on this 706, but we still wouldn't be within five years of death. First, it's going to be an odd case, but that'll be fine. But you'd later file the claim for refund. So probably in that case, you'd file the 706. You would pay the estate tax because we got the 16 months after the date. We got the 15 months after the date of death. The extended date's out of there. We just got to pay the tax. And then once we get the 709 or 706 together for the first spouse to die, then after that goes in, then we at the same time file a claim for refund to get that other estate tax back. So it mentions that particular issue. Now, as a practical matter for those of us in practice, this is what's important about this. This means that there's a much longer time period after a spouse dies during which we could fix with a late portability election. My guess is this also means there's some exposure to us. Why? Well, if you take on a new client and their spouse had died within five years before the date you meet with them and talk about their tax situation, you may want to make sure you have a documented discussion about portability yet again. And remind the spouse, this could still be done by the fifth anniversary. Yes, we would charge for it. You know, this is what it would do. It would allow us to put the exemption on top of your exemption. So when you pass away or if you make gifts, we can make the higher number. Now, as, as I think should be honest, to be fair about this, you know, I've heard some people say, oh, that we should always do it. My answer is probably not. Uh, the surviving, in terms of always file the, the portability election. My take is, gang, at the current level, even if the numbers go down, to only six million uh, exemption at the you know in 2025, that's still way more total assets than the average than any, even the high end average American dies with. You're looking at far less than one percent of estates that would have a taxable estate even at the six million dollar level. You know, and again, portability is, go, is going to get six to 12. So, you know, will we really have to do it? Probably not. But you do want to document the fact you told the spouse about it because there always is that chance they strike it rich or some other way get in a situation for unexpected reasons where suddenly it's worthwhile. Now, I say document it because my thing is, I think you do have to tell the surviving spouse that this is not going to save the surviving spouse a dollar. It'll first save money, to be totally honest, it'll first save money when you die and things go to your kids. Because I've found surviving spouses have also not been terribly thrilled in most cases to make gifts prior to their death. They're a little nervous about giving something away because they might need it. And that may be irrational, but doesn't matter. They're not comfortable, so you deal with what they do. So you have to explain that this won't help them. It will help their kids. Now, if they want to help their kids, fine, they do it. But in all too many cases, a spouse is going to say, A, our estate's never going that big. My estate's never going to be that big. And secondly, if it is, the kids should just be dang grateful they're getting more money and quit whining about any estate taxes because I don't want to you know, take money out of my pocket in order to 
you know, on the outside chance that this, you know, they might somehow be exposed to a state tax later. And that's a rational position you're allowed to take. But please remember, if it does turn out there's an estate tax due that could have been blocked by a portability election, the surviving spouse is not going to be around to testify that he or she was told about not making this election. So I would always say get that letter in writing, make it clear, explain it to them, and then have them say, okay, fine, I'm not going to do it, and document that fact. That's going to be the key. The IRS also clarifies they will not be issuing any private letter rulings if this, if this ruling applies. Now, previously, as I recall, under Revenue Procedure 2017-34, they hadn't actually said they wouldn't issue private letter rulings. And I suspect they may have gotten some belts and suspenders type rulings where people just wanted to have it absolutely documented that we had complied with these rules, so they might have asked for a private letter ruling. The service now makes it clear, if, you, if your situation qualifies for relief under this ruling, or that's the only way it could get relief, then, you know, you have to use this ruling. That means, for practical matter, they're going to send back any request for a private letter ruling for late election relief that, you know, when it's within five years of the death of the first spouse to die. Because either that spouse, when they died had an estate less than the exclusion amount, therefore was not required to file, and therefore this is the way you would get relief. Or they had to file, so they don't qualify for this. And if that's true, if they, don't, if they had to file, this ruling makes it very clear, you cannot get late relief. The regs do too. So from the IRS perspective, until five years after the first spouse dies, they're effectively not even considering private letter rulings. I'm not sure there's any, maybe you could try to argue for it if a, you know, if, if there was a 706 filed, which opted out of this, and maybe you could get the IRS to agree to let you change that election, though it doesn't seem like they want to. But that's the only scenario where maybe they at least entertain discussing a PLR. But I have a feeling they won't in that case either. So be aware of that. This is how you get it for five years. Big takeaway for us, make sure you document on your new clients where a spouse died within five years of the date, you know, within five years of the date you first meet with them to discuss their tax matters. They take you on in taxes. You want to document if that spouse died, you discuss portability and whatever decision they made, including getting this done and explain to them the fee that's going to be there too. That's part of the deal. Next up, chief count, chief, okay, email chief counsel advice. No, I'd get that out eventually. 2022-26010. This came out on July 1st. Now, this is an odd scenario. It's a rather short email, but it's kind of interesting. We have a taxpayer. Now, this taxpayer had a business, right? And he sold this business to a buyer, and he was going to be paid on a note from the buyer. And when that happened, he said, look, I've got this divorce I'm finalizing with my spouse. And I'm going to be paying my ex-spouse alimony. So this isn't a property settlement. We're not giving the ex-spouse this because he or she, in this case, it was, I think, pretty clear it's a she, was going to be paid out for her interest in the company. We're paying alimony. 
Now, that may have been he was, this guy was trying to get a tax advantage from it, whatever. But it is alimony. So we're going to tell the seller of the business, the buyer, though, who's when he's paying on the note, that on this part of the note, the payment is to go directly to the ex-spouse as part of the divorce decree, and it's going to be used specifically to pay the alimony obligation of the seller. Now, a few years go by and the seller ends up with a federal tax problem and we're into collection mode and the IRS is looking at filing federal tax liens. So now the question arises, can the IRS file a federal tax lien on this agreement, which is being paid to the ex-spouse? It's not being paid to the taxpayer. You know, so every month the buyer is writing checks to ex-spouse. Ex-spouse does not have a federal tax problem. Can they still attach that? Or is it, because it's going to the ex-spouse, you know, the, the, does that mean that they can't do that as a lien? It's out of, you know, it's just gone because it's already been pledged to pay her alimony. And the IRS counsel concluded that, no, the way it's structured, I think it's key here. Remember, this is being used to pay alimony, which is a liability of the uh person who's got the tax problem and you know it's being done that way and i'm sure it's being done that way so he or he i think it's still he would get the tax deduction we've got to double check which one it is but okay we'll say he or she could be either doesn't matter and that's i think the key problem it's still an amount due back to this person and this person says so i don't need to write a check to my ex I just want you to send this, this part of it directly to my ex. They found that, yes, we could attach that. I would say there's no question it would be a very different situation if, as part of the divorce, and it looks like the business was sold around the same time as the divorce went through, if, as of the divorce, the surviving, the not surviving, think about the last one, the ex-spouse was granted, you know, a, let's say we're going to award the former spouse 40% of the note, that would have been that spouse's note and that spouse's note that would have been used to pay for their, you know, to pay to pay them off for their share of the property settlement. That would be fine. But in this case, because it's for alimony, I think the service is right here. This thing works as something that could be attached for a federal tax lien. So, look at that at least i'm not sure if you know the surviving spouse it would seem like great tax planning at the time and i suppose that's probably an, another thing we should warn you about this might have seen great tax seen great tax planning at the time and you might have been doing some sort of rate arbitrage because the one receiving it would have a lower tax rate the one paying so because of that we could maximize benefits to both less out of pocket for the payer more in pocket for the recipient spouse. But you should be aware that having structured it this way instead of as property settlement, that does mean the surviving spouse is at risk for probably not just the IRS, but any other creditor may be able to step in there because this is really his debt, but it's being paid by this note that is simply being redirected. So, and that's something where you as a advisor could end up whipsawed by this having suggested this because of the great tax issues now obviously 
this is a bad result if you are the spouse who received, received the payment. Because believe me, if this guy is not paying the IRS, do you really think he's going to be able to pay you? You know, now it's like, yeah. And that may have been part of it too. You thought he was flaky anyway. So the only way you do alimony is if, you know, it came off this note from somebody else who I could trust more than, you know, my flaky ex. Um, yeah, suddenly that could come home to roost and that really, really genius idea you had could turn to a genius problem. As always, always in the back of your mind, think about how something could go south. And just make sure, because gang, unlikely things happen. You're in practice any period of time. You have had tax situations that you would have swore could never have happened that happened. And this is one of those things that easily could blindside somebody and could get somebody in trouble for you. Well, you should have told me about this issue. Next up is the case of Dr. Bennett versus Commissioner. Case number 7885-21, bench opinion. So this is one of these bench opinions issued by the tax court. Uh, and it was issued on July 5th. Now, this physician, she failed to file her tax returns or pay taxes for three years. It was 17, 18, 19. Right. The IRS did file substitutes for return against her. We've now agreed on the taxes in question that she owes, but she went to tax court trying to get relief because the IRS didn't. The IRS turned her down for relief from the late filing penalty, the failure to file penalty, the failure to pay penalty, and her failure to pay sufficient estimated taxes. So she's going to court to try to get relief from that. Now, there's no question she did not file these returns on time. There's no question she didn't pay until much later. And there's clearly no question she didn't pay the estimated taxes. So the question becomes, can she get out of the penalty? For failure to file a return and failure to pay, there is the ability to get out of that penalty under Section 6651 under A1 or A2, we, we can get out of that penalty if we can show that there is reasonable cause for our late filing, right? Reasonable cause would work. So obviously, she's going to now be looking to say, hey, I had reasonable cause. Now, the problem here is, and it's kind of like a lot of these, it's not very obvious how it was argued, but that we got there. But she really had like two ways she, she thought she should qualify. First, she noted that for two of the years, 2018 and 2019, that she worked far fewer hours than she had before as a physician. And she also stated that she thought she'd have a refund from prior years that could be used towards her 2017 tax liability. So she thought there was no liability in 2017. So based on that, she said, hey, the penalty shouldn't apply to me, right? I, I, you know, I, I have reasonable cause for not having done that. Now, reasonable cause under this late filing deadline, which is the one they really looked at in detail. Uh, whether reasonable cause, you know, if, if you have reasonable cause and a lack of willful neglect in failing to file, then you, you can get out of the penalty. That's that 5% per month, maximum 25% penalty. So you can get out of it under that scenario. 
However, the court notes that the way the test works here is to prove reasonable cause for failure to timely file, the taxpayer must show he or she exercised ordinary business care and prudence and was nevertheless unable to file the return within the prescribed time. Similar test applies to the late payment. I tried. I took reasonable care, you know, and I just was unable to do it. Well, the court makes it very clear. And this has been brought up in a number of cases over the years. If you are, if you're going to claim like an illness, an illness, sickness, hospitalization, etc., those can be valid reasons for late filing. However, the court notes that if during the time that you were, you know, that, that you claimed this sickness rendered you unable to get your tax returns done, you were still able to carry on your regular business. That that's not going to work for reasonable cause. If you're able to work, basically the way this goes, if you're able to work, then you're able to get your return taken care of. That's the general rule the court looks at. You're able to function. And there was no question she was still able to function as a physician and did so. She may have worked less hours, but she was still working as a physician. It wasn't as if she was unable to do so. By the way, the funniest case on this a couple of years ago, I recall reading, I don't have the site, but it was just kind of, I remember reading about it, was a CPA who was still filing returns for clients. That was one kind of obvious. You have time to get returns done for clients. You have time to get your return done, right? You should have stepped, stepped aside, got your return done, and done one less client. That had been the theory there, so tough luck. Also, on the failure to pay penalty, the court was, in fact, didn't even really touch it. But that whole bit, well, I thought it was overpaid. Well, you weren't, and you really took no steps to figure out if you were. Not surprising the court didn't spend any time telling you why that wasn't reasonable cause for not paying the tax due. And finally, the court looked at the underpayment of estimated, of estimated taxes. And the court notes that there, there really is no reasonable cause relief for not paying your estimated taxes. There are various statutory rules at 6654E that you could meet. And, you know, and there is a brief reference to reasonable cause if you're underpaid and you just retired and you have reasonable cause for not knowing you should have paid because there are, you know, some cases like that where that's something people foul up. So, but aside from that, there's really no reasonable cause relief there. And she wasn't retiring. You know, she was in this as is. So the court held there is no reasonable cause relief available here at all. So bottom line, all three penalties applied to her. She needs to pay the penalties. And that was the end of her tax court case. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of July the 11th, 2022. Again, you can contact me by email, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. I also am checking in on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, Minnesota, Washington, and take a look at Idaho's discussion groups, too. So if you're a member of any of those state CPA societies, you can check in there, and I'll take a look and uh, see if there's anything there maybe I could help with if somebody has a question, so you can pop them there. Should work fine. Otherwise, uh, hopefully you have a good week in taxes. Hopefully everything's going well for you. 
And we'll be back here next week to talk about anything else that goes on here in the area of current federal tax developments.